Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Some of what you know is not right. The bathtub, in particular. But unfortunately, a lot of what you know is correct. No thank you for dragging us into this subject. Love, the History Chicks. The end. Let's talk about Elizabeth Bathory. But first, let's drop her in history. In 1614, the dual-numbered King James I and VI, son of Mary, Queen of Scots, was ruling England and Scotland. Meanwhile, across the Channel, French King Louis XIII turned 13, although his mother, Marie de' Medici, continued her tenure as his regent. The Romanov dynasty began when Tsar Michael I ascended the throne in Russia. On another continent, not yet Queen Anna Nzinga was settling in for a long battle with the Portuguese over the resources and people of her kingdom in Africa. Galileo was wrapped up in an intellectual drama regarding his support of the works of mathematician and astronomer Nicholas Copernicus. Greek artist El Greco died, and although Countess Elizabeth Bathory died in 1614, the mystery that was her life still lives on. We would like to issue a warning, several warnings actually for this episode. Chances are, no matter how liberal your attitudes are toward what your children should listen to, there's no way the under 18s should be listening to this episode. In addition, if you have a problem with violence against children or blood, sexual assault, you might want to think twice. We're just giving you a warning. Thanks a lot. And without further ado, on with the show. Erzsébet Batory was born on August 7, 1560, near modern-day Nirbator, Hungary, the second child of the five of Jörgi and Anna Batory. So, I've said it correctly once, and now I'm just going to say Erzsébet, because I don't want to tornado you. <laughs> Excellent. Erzsébet is very difficult to say, but Erzsébet is a lot easier, and it's a cool name. It looks cool. E-R-Z-S-E-B-E-T. Cool name. All right. Well, now you'll read <laughs> that her parents were inbred cousins. And I'm here to say, yes, they did have the same last name, but were from two whole different branches of the same family and were a degree of cousin removed that even in modern times wouldn't get you a second look at the family reunion, I don't think. Mm -mm, no. And it was a very aristocratic tree. I mean, there was three princes of Transylvania, a future prince, the king of Poland. This is a big name family. And their marriage seemed to ease tensions like Lancaster and York. You know, this was the bringing together of two grumpy factions of the family. <laughs> so um, her family was noble. They'd been that way for at least 350 years by the time Erzabet was born. They were so highly ranked, in fact, that they had beef with the Habsburgs that the Habsburgs had to take seriously. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the level at which we're operating. Um, Bator actually means brave hero. So that's a good word origin for their last name. So Papa Yorgi was important enough that the Habsburgs had just seized some castles, plural, from him to punish him for not backing their candidate for king of Hungary. <laughs> that's why our Ursabet was born at a backup castle over there near <laughs> Romania. Somehow they found the courage to go on. <laughs> Mama's first husband had been the heir, the only undisputed heir to vast 
tracts of land and more money than I can fathom, frankly. (laughs) And she had come to this marriage with assets and actually the better branch of the Battery family. Mama was a great catch. She was also a great supporter of the Reformation, even becoming a patron for a Protestant school. You have to remember, we're not that far out from Martin Luther nailing his 96 theses to the church door. Protestantism is spreading all across Europe. Only about 40 years, I think, Anna was a Protestant. Jorge was raised as a Catholic, but having the Habsburgs steal his property kind of made him look towards this new wave of religion and say, oh, that's kind of cool. I think I might be a Lutheran. So religious controversy, even among the Christians, was sweeping the continent. Not to mention that the powerful Islamic Ottoman Empire was all up in everyone's business throughout Europe at this time. Let's just say it was interesting times. That's a curse, you know? (laughs) Those meddlesome Turks had been invading Hungary. So the Hungarian nobility needed firepower to combat them. So they kind of threw together an army of peasants. Peasants who were were not too pleased with their treatment over the previous years. So instead of defending the nobles, what these peasants did is try to overthrow them and they were defeated and a new set of laws was enacted. If you were a peasant, now you were a serf. And if you were a noble, you were above the law. This failed rebellion, which had happened years before Ersebet was born, had turned the whole class of peasantry into slaves, really, a la the Hunger Games. If you think about the whole premise of the Hunger Games, a failed rebellion had turned the people who lived in the district into, basically, property. No status is human. Except the nobility were kind of excluded from paying taxes, but the peasants were not. (laughs) And they had to give 50 days of free labor a year, not really travel and Ownership of firearms was surprisingly forbidden. (laughs) So we don't know a lot about the personalities of either of Elizabeth's parents. We can assume they have that cushioned by money, whatever I do is the right decision personality that is really hard to achieve as, say, an onion farmer. (laughs) Um, But that's society at large. So basically all the nobles are going to be like that. We're more familiar with Queen Elizabeth of England, who came to power just as our Elizabeth was born. The Lack of respect for human life is baffling to me. I've said it before. So we think of Queen Elizabeth as this bastion of um, civility, and perhaps in contrast she was, but this whole peasants are low people is pretty common throughout Europe. Mm -hmm. Although perhaps not as codified into law as it was in Hungary. No, and their treatment of them was abysmal. It was just, I don't want to say it was tradition, but it's the way it was. Even the guy who led that revolt, the way he was executed was vicious. They stripped him naked, put a burning metal crown on his head, strapped him to a metal chair and lit a fire underneath it. And according to some legend, his army was made to eat his roasted meat. I don't know if that's true. I couldn't find verification of it, but I thought I'd throw it out because it's colorful. (laughs) Well, books will point to Elizabeth's witnessing of such gruesome punishments as the reason for her future violent behavior. She saw a man sewn up into a horse and thrown into the river, for example, which is sort of a fake scenario anyway, because horses were prohibitively expensive, more expensive than a simple peasant, and we're not going to waste a horse in that way. Maybe it just died in a carriage accident. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I know that particular legend has her standing at the sidelines giggling. I'm thinking no, (laughs) but you read that everywhere. That's a really interesting thing about this woman is the number of stories 
that are presented as fact about her. Everything seems backdated, though. To make sense of what happened later, you have to make her childhood full of I don't know what. Mm -hmm. When it doesn't seem like contemporary sources remark on it at all. So anyway, okay, I am asking you, would that not mean the whole of Europe would have been turned into the same thing that she turned into? This is the drawn and quartered era. This is the heads on pikes on the bridge on your way to school era. Mm -hmm. This doesn't hold water as an origin story or an excuse, I think. Mm -mm. So many biographies that you will read disregarding timelines, probability, and common sense will paint Elizabeth's childhood home as this hotbed of all kinds of lechery and violence. You know, her her aunt taught her how to murder people. Her guardian gave her lessons in torture. People wandered the halls shrieking and fighting each other with swords. I mean... Yes, in my house, but they were nerve swords. <laughs> um, Supposedly mental illness was prevalent in their family. And she may have had a mental illness, but I don't think anything in her childhood indicated that that was the case. I mean, you can't test these people, so you don't know. She seemed to have these fits of rage, which I read is kind of like entitled tantrums. But some people have read as a, a manifestation of whatever mental illness she had. So There's a lot of questions in this story. Ersabet and her father, Yorgi, do seem to have suffered from epilepsy and from migraines and the short temper that you get when the cure for a headache was to hold a piece of hangman's rope on your head. (laughs) I'd be bent out of shape, too. My kingdom for an Advil and whatnot. Um, These fits of rage. I mean, we've all seen Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> you yes. get Veruca Salt wanting it now and you get a reputation. So that's boring though, I guess, if you're if you're really thinking of some kind of strain of mental illness all coalescing within this one person, it really did take a long time to percolate if that's what you're going to point to. Mm-hmm. I'm just really coming down on the side of maybe these people had more money than they knew what to do with and got a little eccentric. Um but we saw that during the Gilded Age too. I don't know if you remember, we talked about how rich people in the Gilded Age made their servants stir their hard-boiled eggs so that the yolks would be perfectly in the center and would fly into a rage if they weren't. Or Wallace Simpson and her crazy dog birthday parties. I, <laughs> I worked for a guy who couldn't stand to hear the word green and would go outside the office until you sent a note out to say you were sorry for having said it. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. The word green? <laughs> yes. In retail? Yes. Wow. I'm not going any further. (laughs) He's still alive. That's all I'm saying. But nobody there was married to a cousin or killed you for sports. Um, They had just been taught by life that they were a little too important for this imperfect world. But I do want to say that the benign neglect around this house did leave open a place for child abuse by trusted overseers. If it was going to happen, here's where you'd find it. Child abuse of any kind. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was her family, but I don't think her family would have been in a position to prevent or even understand if anything was happening. True, true. They did seem very hands off, you know, kind of like gave the kids a push into life and then walked away. But all sources do say that she was extremely intelligent and both of her parents encouraged an education for all of their children, the boys and the girls. The boys were sent away to school, of course, and the girls were self-taught and tutored at home. And Erzabet was extraordinarily brilliant. She was a very motivated self-learner. This is (laughs) the list of things that she studied was unbelievable. 
literature, mathematics, astronomy, botany, anatomy. She could speak and write in Hungarian, obviously, but that was still unusual for the times. A lot of nobles just had people write for them because they couldn't write. She spoke Greek, Latin, and German, and she spoke Slavic, which was the language of the servants. This is a lot of education for a young girl. Erzabet, like Mary Tudor and Queen Elizabeth before her, had been born in that tight window of time in Europe where it was fashionable to educate your noble daughters to the same high standards that you educated your sons. Mm-hmm. There's a tiny window. We talked about that before. Yeah. She was the beneficiary of that kind of thought. I don't know if that's tied to the Reformation or not, actually. That would be interesting to study. She also studied what passed for comparative religion. Logic, oration. She was taught to fence and to ride, as well as the usual ladylike pursuits of needlework and dancing. (laughs) And dressing up. I read several accounts that she loved to dress up. You know, who doesn't, right? (laughs) Anyway, the window for all tutoring of any kind was very short. Papa died when Erzabet was only 10. And the very next year, Erzabet was betrothed to 16-year-old Count Ferenc Nidashti Dinashtad de Forgarasfold. Oh, my gosh. My phonetics end at Nidashti. That's impressive. (laughs) Well, and she was sent to her future husband's house so her mother-in-law could finish her upbringing. We've seen that before with noble brides. So at 11, she would have been removed from any influence of her birth house and family anyway, even if all hell was breaking loose there, which it mostly wasn't, right? (laughs) No, right, right. Anyway, the Nadajji family is very different from her own. Where they live is kind of like uh, New Hungary. It's uh, got a lot more modernization. They live in a refurbished castle. Nadajdi Sr. was, by all accounts that I could read, seemed like the most interesting man in Hungary. He even looked like him. I am not kidding. I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have time to get into father-in-law's exploits exactly. No. But you all think right. all the Tudor intrigue is exhausting? The way he acted, this Count Tomas, makes the Tudors look like they're pushing a stroller while he's up doing American ninja courses. <laughs> <laughs> he is something else. He has got skills with a Z. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and he is 32 years older than his wife, but they love each other. This is a very loving relationship based on the letters that still exist. They're very playful and flirtatious between the two of them. This is the house that Ferco grew up in. You know, with p- parents who loved each other. Very unusual. There was education everywhere. There's lots of books. Papa brought in um, scholars to talk about literature, <laughs> just, you know, for fun. <laughs> so that's the household that she's moving into. And Bad. people will try to tell you that Erzabet and her mother-in-law, the Countess Ursulia, or Ursula in English, hated each other, that this mother-in-law taught her to be a sadist by treating her horribly, starving her, beating her, making little Erzabet's life a living terror, um, except for the fact that the Countess Ursula had died right after Ursabet got there. Was it a ghost university? (laughs) Uh, We can't blame the mother-in-law either, as easy as that would be. All these people wanting to wrap this up with an easy explanation. Poor old Countess Ursula got a lot of heat for someone who is dead. (laughs) But Ferco, we're going to call Varence 
Ferco. Although I have to say, I love the name Ferenc. Is anyone a fan of the Discworld books by Terry Pratchett? There is a very beloved bumbling doofus of a king named King Ferenc um, <laughs> that runs through many, many books. So I was very pleased to see this name. Anyway, Ferco, the future Mr. Erzabet, was that rarest of things, an only child. Mm-hmm. A very, very late in life gift to his aged father after the deaths of some older siblings. He, uh, this Count Tomas, papa, had died many Many years before when his son was only seven. But the legacy of money and power and fame, not to mention machismo <laughs> and balls of steel <laughs> that he had left for his only son was a lot to live up to. Um, Mr. Ferco was a popular guy. I, he's destined to crack skulls and carry a sword because in contrast to Erzabet, Old Ferco seems to be nearly illiterate, despite being surrounded by the latest and greatest of modern education. So <laughs> here's Erzabet reading books and autodidacting herself into an advanced education, soaking up arts and philosophers and just the networking of modern Europe. There was a lot going on. He was out there drinking and, you know, punching each other in the face. I don't know. <laughs> he liked to play soldier from a very early age, and he was very good at it. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. You know what? I imagine in my head that Erzabet coming to this castle was kind of like Belle coming to the Beast Castle and going into the library because there was all this art and Technicolor um, books and just creative thought that wasn't present in the house that she grew up in. So that alone must have excited her, even if her betrothed, you know, just wanted to have duels. (laughs) Well, she was placed when she got here into fine lady school in a way that she'd escaped at home. No one there had been concerned about her posture or how one addresses this or that noble. The what not to do department came down on her hard in these early years. So it's not clear to me again who exactly had charge of her and their level of involvement and their level of sadism. Mm -hmm. Um, I just don't know how harsh the treatment was. I can't imagine that after so much freedom, a 11 to 13 year old girl was feeling awesome about all the restrictions placed on her. Uh-huh. No. So I'm not sure what's happening because when Erzabet was 13, there was an incident. Maybe, maybe an incident. There was an affair with one Ladislav Bend, whose presence there has been proven. So he existed in that place at that time, but he is a hot guy of either very high or very low rank, depending on who you read. <laughs> anyway, this affair supposedly led to a pregnancy and delivery of a daughter who was spirited away to be brought up at a distance. Now, did this happen? Mm-hmm. You'll read that this <laughs> Ladislav either raped her or that she'd had a schoolgirl crush on him. This muscular triangular man that worked in a stable that Erzabet's enraged fiance had this Ladislaw's pee-pee cut off and <laughs> fed to him before being thrown in the river. That Erzabet had to swear to the clergy that she'd been kidnapped, drugged, and raped before her marriage could go ahead. If this incident occurred at all, by the way, I'm sure it helps that Uncle Istvan, which is Hungarian Stephen, I don't know why I love that so much, but <laughs> he's now the king of Poland. You know, her mother died and now she's even more rich than before. I hope none of it happened, but you can see why it might be smoothed over if it did. Mm -hmm. She's alone and she's 13. Even her princess classes might have been full of abuse and violence. There's just no department of 
child services to protect her. I hope none of this happened, but mm-hmm. that story is out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I there was so many holes in it. I just had a hard time with it because they could never find who this girl was. They couldn't trace her back. You pointed out all the holes. I, it's, I, I lean towards it didn't happen, and it's just part of her uh, made-up um, history. However, I have to say, if you're looking for, quote, reasons she might have cracked in later life, had she actually been kidnapped, drugged, and raped? Because <laughs> that might leave a scar. Of course it would. Or having um, your child spirited away from you would also leave a scar. And had she been mistreated by her overseers in this place, or in fact, before when she was in the other castle. So there are things that could have happened in the background, <laughs> mm-hmm. but we just have no way to point to those things as being the cause because there's no record of it. Right, right. And other bad things were happening. Both of her parents were dead by the time that they wed in 1575. They are the adults in the room. She's 14 and he's 19. But their wedding, oh my goodness, it was just kind of a quiet, subdued, quickie wedding. (laughs) If you consider endless parties, a jousting tournament, three days of lavish revelry with 4,500 of your closest friends and family Quiet and subdued and quick. Well, it's two of the grandest families in the land joining forces and wealth and land. These two teenagers were now richer than the king of Hungary. Mm -hmm. I actually pulled one thing that they did out as I thought this would kind of be maybe a fun thing to do now. Um, All the single ladies covered their faces with veils and the groom has to go among them and pick out his betrothed. Who he might not have seen that many times. I know. Good luck to you. I wonder if he like picks out her her maid of honor. <laughs> I was kidding. This does not sound like a fun game. I was just like, be- is it binding? I don't no. think so. Just to be clear, just to be clear. <laughs> Even such a personage as the Holy Roman Emperor himself sent a wedding present. So um, all of Europe was making sure that their cards made it, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and after the actual ceremony, the religious ceremony in a cathedral, and the putting to bed, and the witnessing the consummation, to make it stick, yes. Yeah. More festivals. Hooray! <laughs> and what do, as a groom, you get the girl that has everything? Literally everything. <laughs> Furco decided to give his bride a small token of affection. That would be Cheta Castle. He gave her a castle and the 17 villages in its fiefdom as a present. Here you go, dear. I got a snow globe. And this is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what married life is like for these two. We'd like to thank Third Love for sponsoring this episode. So let me ask you, how's your bra fitting right now? I'll tell you, mine is fitting great. I barely know it's on, except when I look in the mirror. You know, Third Love uses the measurements of millions of real women to get their perfect fit. Third Love designs their bras with breast size and shape in mind for an impeccable fit and an incredible feel. 
You and I both know we are all shaped differently, and so does Third Love. Third Love is the industry leader with 70 sizes, including its signature half cup sizes. Now, you know, I've told you before, I have a drawer full of Third Love bras. I took the Fit Finder quiz, the first one came, I put it on, and it was love at first wear. And I have to tell you, that very first bra I got, I still have. I've worn it for at least two years now. They're tagless. The detail on the straps make it so that they don't ever slide down. And I know a lot of you don't like to wear bras with foam cups, but the memory foam is so thin, it doesn't add any bulk as an added incentive, either for yourself or for someone you love. Third Love knows that there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 15% off their first order. Just go to thirdlove.com slash chicks now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's Third Love. You're going to have to spell it out. T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E.com slash chicks for 15% off today. And we're back. Young Arisabet and her husband, who we are calling Mr. Fairco because we like saying that name a lot, <laughs> are married. Uh, what does that even look like? Well, the books, the books in quotes, will tell you that not only did she keep her name, but he took her name, which doesn't seem to be borne out by documentation. She referred to herself with the last name of Bathory. But her contemporaries referred to her as Lady Nadajdi. Which seems to go along with what you would expect. So I'm not sure if I'm thinking about, you know, like how Princess Eugenie just married a commoner. And so she is still Princess Eugenie. She keeps her title. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is it like that kind of thing? Like Bathory is higher so she can refer to herself as, I mean, you can refer to yourself as whatever you want. In my head, I had it hyphenated, so it kind of covered all the bases. I really don't think it was hyphenated during her life. No, I don't think it was, but it was a rabbit hole I just didn't want to go down. What you can see right after she becomes the lady of the house is kind of what you would expect. Daily life, mostly getting dressed for hours a day, commanding the servants, taking meetings (laughs) with so-and-so and so-and-so, overseeing the entertainment and the food. Okay, but it's not just at this one castle. You know, their real estate portfolio included dozens of villages, many thousands of acres of land dotted all across Hungary. So it's not like just like she's hanging out at the one castle and networking within her circle there. It's everywhere. She's She could be anywhere. But soon after they were married, the Turks started rampaging seriously through Hungary again. And Firko's life sort of snapped into place. So most of the time, after the first couple of years of their marriage, he was away fulfilling his destiny and dream and soldiering it up all over Europe. I'm sorry to say he ultimately had quite a reputation for brutality on the battlefield. He was the Black Count of Hungary, um, and we'll get into that later. But for now, it is his absence from all of his homes that is the most notable, mostly because when the lord of the manor is away... The lady of the manor was responsible for the whole shebang, the whole operation. 30 or so castles, all the villages. So if one has 17, do the math. What's 17 times 30? I don't even have any idea. Um, Every member of staff ultimately reported to her. She oversaw the judicial system, the payment of taxes, ordering of supplies, and quality of same, repairs and fortification lest people attack their property, even political matters. You had to be good at diplomacy. Obviously, 
She had stewards and experts at every level, but Ershabet spent a part of every day keeping her finger on the pulse of even the smallest dispute over a bag of flour. She put her two fingers to her eyes and she pointed. (laughs) She made it very clear. Someone up here at the top has their eye on the ball and that someone was her. I love this about her. If she didn't understand a thing, whatever it was, she summoned records and experts and educated herself on it. She wanted to do a good job. She wanted to fulfill her responsibilities. Uh, Firko and Erzabet, by proxy, had to provide churches and hospitals and protection for everyone under her umbrella. The pressure must have been intense. It all boils down to those laws that were enacted before she was even born. You know, yeah, they don't have to pay taxes, but they're in charge of everything. So you'd think that Ersebet would welcome her husband's occasional return, like lay the burden down and go to bed with a cold rag on my forehead. He generally came back at Easter and Christmas. You could pretty much count on it. Some years he'd be back at harvest. Is that a telling statement? Yeah, it was a telling statement that uh, he liked his job. He loved being in the military. He was a captain in the Hungarian army. He was, you know, with his four buddies, they were called the unholy quintet. They were playing catch with severed heads. What's not to love? God, that's (laughs) wacko. So wacko. I can't even believe it. Well, so back to Erzabet, though. Do any of you, dear listeners, have military spouses or remote working ones? So they come back. And they disrupt your routine, don't they? (laughs) Maybe even have ideas of their own about how well you've been running things while they're gone. They might want to go through the checking account or see some receipts. And your (laughs) spouse probably doesn't bring hundreds of soldiers back with them to be accommodated seamlessly with whatever they need. Her letters to her stewards start to get kind of frantic in the month leading up to when he comes back. And I'm sorry to say there are hints that maybe there were beatings and other poor treatment from the husband toward Ersebet in private almost immediately. And of course, a legally married woman had exactly zero recourse to defend herself against any of that, except maybe, as she was doing, to try her best to keep his temper good, walking on eggshells and hoping he leaves soon. Mm -hmm. But there are only hints about this. To outward appearances, though, the Count and Countess were a team. They were doing exactly what was expected of them. He always backed her in public. He really did allow her nearly free reign to make decisions about their properties. Always cordial to each other and polite. They're not in love. They're not in each other's pockets like his parents were. You'll read that he was gay. You'll read that she was gay. You'll read that there was no attraction or an unholy attraction or you know what? Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, you can't trust anything. It's Their relationship was largely ceremonial in public and who knows what in private. Well, we kind of get a hint as to what, because the job of nobles, of course, is to have children so that their name will carry on. It took them 10 years to have their first child. Now, it's, of course, very rude to ask a woman why she's not having a child. Her husband was away a lot, so that could have been one of the reasons. She could have had infertility issues. That could have been another. There's so many reasons, but it all boils down to one thing. Ten years before they had their first child, and that was a girl named Anna. She named it after her mother. I just want to say this one time. After ten years of marriage, at age 24, Erzabet gave birth to their first child. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So that's all we're going to say. And is it okay with you, Miss Susan, if we can just cover kind of all the kids at once, really, and then come back to the year of Anna's birth? 
Yeah, I actually, I just have all the kids at once right now. So. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. we're not even 100% sure how many children Ersebet even had, whether there were miscarriage or s- stillbirths before Anna, after Anna, interspersed through all these. We don't know. So here's the ones that we're pretty sure of. There's Anna, of course. Uh, second daughter, Orsica, was born when she was about 30. Their third daughter, Katya, around 34. Andreas at 36. And Paul, when she was around 38. Five children. And this mysterious Miklos. Have, did you read about him? I did read about Miklos. And I couldn't figure out what his relationship was. I just, so I, I dropped it. Please tell me. <laughs> well, nobody knows. Absolutely oh, okay. nobody knows. There is a man named Miklos who's older than Anna, who bears their last name, who was given a good marriage and a castle, who was mentioned as a brother to the girls, but otherwise was sort of dismissed. And the thought is that he might be some kind of bastard son of Erzabet's raised out of the limelight. Her husband knows it's not his, but doesn't really want to get into it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Or he could just be a cousin. This propensity people have for giving everyone the same name makes it a little hard to unearth. But (laughs) So there is this mysterious sixth child slash not child who was not, in fact, mentioned in her will. So Well, not all of her children were because they didn't all survive to adulthood. Only three of them did. That would be Paul, Anna, and Katya. Correct. A note on this, by the way, I just want to note about the bastard son of Erzabet rumor. You'll also read that she took advantage of her husband's absence to just frolic with male servants like the Queen of the May. You know, the balloons went up and it was party time. (laughs) There's no evidence of that. I mean, there is copious testimony from all and sundry about many, many aspects of her life later. You'd think that would have come out at a fair or two, possible, whatever. But wanton capering? I know that's boring, but probably not. Who had the time or the energy? Um, (laughs) Or why would you be demeaning yourself to caper around with servants, you know? Yeah, that's the one. That's where I hung my hat. I mean, she was, you know, she was very intelligent, very accomplished, very beautiful. She had dark hair and brown eyes and very fair skin, which was of the time, you know, very, actually, it should be now. Sun is really bad for you. (laughs) (laughs) There was only one portrait of her ever done when she was about 25, and that is now missing, although there are copies of it out. Um, And she's very beautiful. Now, so you'll think, hey, that's weird. This noble woman, there's only one portrait. I mean, we have many portraits of people's dogs, right? But (laughs) two schools of thought, the shame that she brought might have created, caused the destruction of any other portraits. And perhaps her husband's enemies did not need to see verified evidence of what his wife looked like um, in case of kidnapping or ransom, etc. So maybe it was a safety issue. So there's those two schools of thought. So the children, as they came, were placed with wet nurses. That was totally normal when the time came. And then sent to live with functionally nanny, also completely normal. In this case, though, a woman named Ilana Joe, strangely not noble. I thought that was weird. But Mm -hmm. the wife of a coachman. Yeah, I had read something that she may have been Elizabeth's nanny when she was younger, too. So maybe it's just traveled with her. I don't, I can't, I couldn't find verification of anything. But yeah, that is a little odd. So an old servant that was kind of close to her heart, maybe. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that makes sense. That makes sense. Who who was probably a single girl and then later got married. Yeah. Got it. So the children, 
seem to have been well treated according to the standards of the day, materially provided for, I guess is what I mean by that. But I just don't know how anyone ever gets to adulthood through this whole time period without being emotionally stunted, which I think is the point of the whole thing. Where was the love? Did anyone get hugged? I mean, I hope so. Right now, the only thing we have to go on is letters that she wrote and have been translated, have been discovered, first off, and have been translated. And they were letters to her husband talking about the children. So to me, that says that, you know, she was very concerned about their well-being and that implies love. Things about tooth rot. I was going to say, nobody had a tooth in their head, did they, by the end? (laughs) She was always talking about how, like, well, the man came over and stuck a burning rod into her tooth hole or something. (laughs) Just like, oh, my God. The barber came over because back then it was barber surgeons that did this kind of dentistry. So if this had been even just 100 years before, I'm remembering when we were talking about Queen Elizabeth, how sugar came in and it was like all the thing. And so people would suck on sugar to get keep their breath sweet. <laughs> I think that whole fad for sugar is really not doing a good job with the nobility of Europe right now. <laughs> no, and I can't imagine, A, that it would keep your breath sweet. B, and then the tooth rot, you know, the cavities that resulted certainly wouldn't smell good. Maybe we shouldn't smile in our portrait after all. (laughs) Well, okay. So we are going to rewind the tape here to the year Anna was born, the year things are starting to get very, very dark. It all began, this is 1585. We are 34, 35 years old. And it started with Erzabeth's temper starting to leak out. She began to pinch servants who displeased her or deliver a slap to the face out of nowhere. Young servant girls could expect to leave her presence with bruises as a matter of routine. We start to see a pattern, I think, of a little disregard for other people's pain. The year Anna was born, we see the first known fatality. (laughs) Isn't that a sentence? (laughs) We see the first known fatality. Her baby is born and somebody dies. The local pastor was summoned to the castle Sarlor, where they were living, to bury a servant who had died in the night. Now, in this time and in this place, people had a short lifespan. That's true. Diseases ran rampant. No one knew what caused them. So he comes... It's a routine type of situation. But this servant, rather than being laid out on a bed, as you would expect, was already in a sealed up coffin, ready to go. And the countess whispered to him, cholera, let's not start a panic. (laughs) Oh, I see. Oh, of course. Of course. No problem. And then did the little ceremony. She gets taken away. Okay, we get away with that one time. Right. But there is a trail of dead servant girls, which began to follow the countess on progress from now on. House to house, village to village, the rumors ran ahead of her. The countess had a set of secret rooms guarded by a giant man where young girls went in, but didn't come out in one piece. Or if they did come out, they told stories of needles under their fingernails, of showing blue marks and deep cuts hidden under their clothes to their fellow servants. So Mr. Fearco evidently participated when he was home and elevated the scenario, teaching his wife and a couple of assistants some of the clever techniques he'd learned interrogating prisoners on the battlefield, i.e., here's how you choke them almost to death and bring them back. Needles are fine, but fire is way funner. Also, look at this cool trick with honey and ants. It's wasteful to kill them, though, dear. You should really preserve them right at the end and let them heal up before you call them back. 
According to anything I read, there was no deaths that were related to Ferco. However, he was totally involved in it. Some of them also absolve him of anything other than maybe showing her a few tricks. And that's it. And he's done. He's back at battle, you know, looting the Turks and filling their coffers even fuller than they had been before. So he was involved, definitely. I think he was involved. And there's really nothing the rest of the servants in the house or the families of the victims could even do about it. Peasants were property. They had no right to life independent of whatever their noble overlord chose to grant them anyway. Legally, the Bathories were untouchable. Think about that. Even if they were openly doing it, they were untouchable. Mm-hmm. And the king owed the Bathories a lot of money. Even the king was constrained to act. Ferco was covering the salaries of his soldiers as a loan to the king. That's that's huge. But think about this. Even morally, you would think the church would object, at least, even if Villager has some sort of a mortal soul. I would think one preacher had the nerve to denounce her from the pulpit and called for bodies to be exhumed. And her response, tellingly, was not denial Exactly. But in fact, was like, how dare you question me? I'm going to tell my husband on you. (laughs) Yeah. The church actually got so far as to be debating excommunication by the time Lord Ferco came back because she did write to him. Can you believe what is happening around here? Little did she care anyway. It wasn't her church, the Lutherans. (laughs) Like She didn't care. But a liberal application of money and threats caused the church to back off. It's not as if peasants were real people. After all, and uh, there was no hard evidence, only rumors from some low-class circles. You know what? If it ended here, I can see where they'd be like, "Ah, we wouldn't even be talking about her now. You know, and that's sad and true. If she had stopped here with random servant girls or even taken this warning that people's eyes were upon her and stopped, I think people would have just let it go, which is baffling and shocking to me. (laughs) Uh, I'm with you. So there you go. Well, Firko, Ferenc, Mr. Ersebet, died after a long and debilitating illness. Undetermined origin of same made his legs weak. Maybe it was just his bad deeds coming back to haunt him. (laughs) (laughs) He got hit with too many of those head balls. (laughs) Yeah, there's no indication of what it was. It was something that he had for several years. His legs would get weak. He'd go to bed and they get strong enough that he can continue it back in battle. But every time he got up again, it got worse and worse. And eventually he came home because he knew the end was coming. And so since after his death, her automatic protection, his wife, and probably more importantly, the property that he meant to give to his son was in danger of being seized taken over, blah, 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 all in the charge of a woman. He begged influential friends of his to swear oaths that they would protect his family after he died. Specifically, he went a little bit farther with one guy named Jörg Terzo, and he said, I formally entrust my heirs and widow under your generous protection. That was the last thing that he dictated right before he died. This guy's name is going to come up a little later. Put a pin in that. So we have lost our husband. We have lost the braking system to our darker impulses. We have lost the protection that the world automatically gave to a person who has a powerful husband. Mm -hmm. And you have still have children between the ages of 18 and 5. And so we leave her for just a moment in a very precarious set of situations. This is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to find out what life for the widow was like. 
Oh my, we're back. After the death of her husband, during a time of rebellion and war in her country, this added another layer of stress to the management of property, by the way, war, on a scale she'd never faced before. It was a tradition at this time that after you've buried your husband, you kind of go into seclusion socially for about a year. She made it about a month. She had to do some stuff. I mean, Elizabeth's husband had loaned the king, King Rudolph, so much money. And there are letters surviving that detail her attempts to collect it. Can't Mm -hmm. afford it, my dear, said King Rudolph. Can't pay you back. Can't you see there's war on? I mean, members of Elizabeth's own family suddenly took advantage of the chaos to occupy or outright steal property from her. The king took hold of one of her more well-placed castles as a matter of national security. Everyone was ranged against her. They were getting a lot of money from her husband from his looting while he was at war. That was a big uh, money flow for them. Well, her brother died within a year of her husband, and that was another way for her to get money is through her family. But all of his property was transferred to a distant cousin, and it was out of her reach. So her uh, cash flow is really starting to dry up. I mean, she was still wealthy by any standards, but compared to how she had been, I can see where she'd be panicking quite a bit. She was forced to sell property to survive. The humiliation and anger of it, you know, they always say you kick the cat Mm -hmm. and the servants are the cats. The servants paid with what I am kind of called the reign of terror. Mm -hmm. The reign of terror. Some of the accounts of what happened to the servant girls during this time, I can't, I mean, we're going to skim. I can't even go into so much of it. (laughs) Stripped naked and cut to pieces while still alive made to stand in freezing water until they died, depriving them of water to drink and making them drink their own pee to survive. The creativity of the horror was something else. Heated pokers and orifices I'm not going into. She used to bite chunks out of people. I, I, what, (laughs) what is happening? She had accomplices who helped her torture. What Elizabeth had done is kind of surround herself with a core group of people. There was a woman named Anna Dervola who she wasn't a servant and she wasn't a peasant. She was more of the lady in waiting kind of class. She came from a lesser nobility. She was the exact opposite of what Ferco had done where Ferco would say, okay, we need to stop this abuse on this person right now. Anna would say, let's keep this up just a little bit longer. And let me show you some things that I've learned in my travels. There was also Four other servants that helped out. Including the nanny. The nanny participated in holding people down, in getting people from her own department of the house to provide as victims. The nanny brought in one of her friends named Dorka, who also seemed very willing to help out with this. There was another older woman named Katerina, who was a laundry woman. And she was brought in and she seemed perfectly okay with not only participating, but helping to clean up the messes that were created. Heaven forbid. There was also a servant boy named Janos, who was often described as a child. He's sometimes described as, a, a, not my word, a dwarf. Um, so he had some type of shortness to him somehow, but he was involved. And all five of these people helped Erzabet do these deeds. The creativity of the torture is beyond anything I can imagine. I also cannot believe how open this all was for years and years and years and years. Here's the thing, though. If you know anything about Elizabeth Bathory, and this is maybe what brought you 
to, this has been one of the most uh, requested subjects we've ever had, which makes me a little concerned about you all. (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. I'm reading some of this stuff and I'm like, what is wrong with these people that they want us to talk about this? I'm going to guess that it was because they wanted to find out if everything that they heard was true, which is what I did. I I wanted to find that out myself. So I'm going to go with that. So if you know anything about her, you probably know that she, quote, bathed in the blood of her victims. Uh, There's no evidence of that. In all the court testimony, there were mentions of the fact that there was so much blood you could scoop it up with two hands and throw it into a bucket. There's plenty of blood to go around. But the bathing in blood thing probably came as part of the vampire craze about 200 years after she died. And sometimes the media will get onto these shticks like now fairy tales told as real. Snow White is a person. The fad was for vampires. And Elizabeth Bathory, there's blood gets kind of swept up in all of that mythology. And she lived in the area. Transylvania was part of Hungary at the time. Now it's part of Romania, but it's right there. Now, I have to tell you, this seems academic to me. There's so much blood all over the floor. Who cares what you use it for? Whether you waste it by not bathing in it or simply just throw it to the pigs. I don't think that part matters to me as much as the fact that it exists in the first place. Yes, I completely agree. And the story is gory enough. Why make it even more so? That's that's the part I was hung up on. So while simultaneously doing her duties very well as a local noblewoman, adjudicating cases, advocating for the downtrodden, the dichotomy here is blowing my mind. She's basically the regent for her young son, Paul, and all his properties, who's inherited a lot of titles and lands. So managing his interest just as well as she used to manage for her husband, we're back to her old unbelievable competence in these matters. She's angry about local authorities taking a cow from a helpless widow while she's over here sewing girls' mouths shut for dropping a stitch in their needlework. (sighs) I think part of the reason why this all became so big at this point is she's kind of centered herself in one castle, in Cheta Castle, you know, her wedding present from her husband. She's kind of staying in the same place where before she was kind of roaming around the country from property to property. A trail of dead girls behind her wherever she went. Now she's got a central hub where she is and the villages that were feeding their daughters up the hill to be servants, the daughters weren't coming back. So it was a little bit more pronounced than it would have been if they were dotted all over the country. Well, not unusually, it started to become a little difficult to get a hold of new young female servants. The the peasants knew what was up. They'd begun to systematically hide their girls as the countess's travels or assistants came around in the neighborhood. Uh, What had taken them so long? I don't know. I guess I would have been digging a cellar a long time ago. Um, Ersebet had a big network of nobles and servants whose job it became nobles and servants. Nobles. Mm, whose job it was to go kidnap new girls for the torture rooms because it was hard to get them to just come be laundresses. Mm-hmm. A, a new scheme was developed because we're reaching the end of the easy pickings. <laughs> it had been a custom at the time for families of lower nobility to send their children to a sort of finishing school at the houses of women, just like Erzbet. So they could go to these castles and learn the customs of court, the customs of society, just kind of finish them and polish them up so that they could be more marriageable. And so that was the scheme that Erzbet 
kind of said, oh, I'm going to open up my own finishing school here. It's called a gynecium, which is Latin for women's residence. The young girls are going to be brought up in an air of refinement. We're training them for their future lives and responsibilities as noble women for a fee, of course. Yeah, a very heavy fee, not only in money, that's for sure. So evidently, the lower class rumors and fear hadn't percolated upstairs because families lined up to send their daughters to Erzabet. She and her competence in matters of property and politics and behavior was seen as someone, you know, I wish you could be more like the Countess. Mm -hmm. Well, she had been doing it for a very long time and very successfully. She's quite glamorous and very wealthy. Yeah. I would want to send my kid to her to learn stuff. I would have been sorry. Several high-ranking male members of her staff warned her, gentlemen's daughters were not property. I'm just saying, you need to be more careful with your behavior. I'm above the law, she's reported to have said quite calmly. It's madness. Mm. Secrecy just went out the window. The local clergy started to refuse to bury any more, quote, cholera victims from Erzabet's house. As a result, those poor girls were just disposed of all over the place. The castle dogs were seen wandering around carrying human arms. A girl was found running in the main street with a knife still sticking out of her foot. Silhouettes of girls hanging by their hair were seen in the window. In less than two months, the entire student body of the gynecium was dead. Oh ho, now you've finally gone too far. Because the parents of those girls are now going to the king. And individually, if one parent reports that their daughter never returned and there's no body, you know, to say how she died is one thing. But when you have several noble families coming with the same complaint, you have to do something as king. So reports had been smuggled out to King Matthias before to the Lord Palatine, basically the Supreme Court justice, second in command to the king, Jurgi Thorzo, Firko's old friend, the man from whom he had elicited an oath to protect Countess Bathory and her children. That guy, he was in a tough place. That is quite a plot twist, isn't it? Yes. He, you know, in an era when oaths meant something, he had given an oath that he would see to the welfare of Ferco's family after he died. But he also knew that his boss, the king, would really love the opportunity to seize the Bathory properties and add them to crown lands because it's a lot of money. Yeah. And he still owed Erzbeth's estate from the money that uh, her husband had loaned him. During the wars. Well, the wars are still going on, but you know. Right. So at least for young Paul, anyway, he owed it to his old friend Ferco's memory to proceed carefully. And he thought, maybe I could send the countess to a convent, um, kind of circumvent any troubles. It's a pretty open incident at her daughter Catalin's wedding prompted the investigations to begin at last, at last, in <laughs> February 1610, when Erzabet was 49 years old. Of course, she had an excuse. You know, all those noble girls, one girl murdered everybody, and then she committed suicide. She's gone from cholera to murder-suicide, mass murder and suicide, as excuses for what she actually did. So Thurzo had to open his investigation, and he opened with the following Salvo. In the past and at the present time, several serious complaints have come to us regarding the noblewoman, Lady Erzabet Bathory. There's her maiden name. Namely, 
that she, through some sort of evil spirit, has set aside her reverence for God and has killed in cruel and various ways many girls and virgins and other women who lived in her gynecium. He deputized some people to go ask some witnesses what was happening. But people were afraid to say what they knew. No one admitted to have seen anything personally. Just, well, it's said, I've heard a rumor. My friend so-and-so said they heard the thing and blah, blah, blah. Ersebeck got wind of these proceedings. I would be afraid too if even the king is reluctant to prosecute her yet. Would you come forward? You're the onion farmer. Your daughter has disappeared. There's no witness protection program and the king is afraid of this person. What are the chances you're going to say anything? Mm -hmm. And this person has authority over you. Yeah. The chances are very slim. And so, unfortunately, for the, you know, cause of justice, they couldn't seem to nail too much down. But it seems that Countess Ersebet saw the storm a-coming. She quickly wrote a will, and she divided her property among her three surviving children, which was smart. In case she was taken in, I guess, she saved the property from reverting to the crown in theory, because she didn't have any property. Mm-hmm. Although, really, if you're thinking about it, he could probably take it anyway. Yeah. Not only the crown, it could have gone to another branch of the family. Correct. It could have gone anywhere and her kids were left with nothing. So what this did, though, in practice, oh dear, was to ensure her sons-in-law, her daughter's husbands, would cooperate with the authorities because that's their own self-interest. Mm-hmm. People of the upper classes were just baffled baffled. Those that had not been intimately involved with this last gynecium, Erzabit's outward personality to them was of refinement. She's the ideal to strive for. She's intelligent. She's thoughtful. She's diligent. These accusations are just the madness of the lower classes. How can this be true? They were indignant on her behalf and um, inclined to disbelieve. And I can see where they're coming from, too. So the king... And Lord Palatine Turso and a whole deputation came to visit Miss Erzabet. She was alarmed and heard they were coming, and she went to the forest to seek a charm to protect herself from their accusations. And the recipe is a little in doubt, but broadly, it's made with her dirty bathwater and some mercury. That's the two gross ingredients, which ended up making all the people that came to visit her sick. Instead of disinclined to question her, they ended up poisoned and therefore very, very angry at her attempt to poison them, which I actually kind of think was not an attempt to poison them because I don't think she'd be that dumb. No, I didn't either. And I actually wondered if it was more, it was a dinner that they had come to. So I wondered if it was more like a food poisoning issue too. More importantly, for this time period, it involved consulting a witch and some black magic and possibly the involvement of Satan. Yeah, not, not good. So that didn't look good. Food poisoning or not, the involvement of Satan, that's a red line. We're not going to cross that. <laughs> so she was arrested in December, late December of that same year, and they did not announce their arrival ahead of time, but simply took a hold of her, took custody of her, and then began to search the castle. She'd always known before. She'd always had time to clean up her act. This time was a surprise inspection. 
and what to their wondering eyes should appear. Well, we don't know. Lord Palatine said that he had caught her red-handed, covered in blood. So we're not sure if that actually happened. It does seem to dovetail with the fact that she didn't know they were coming. Yeah, and there was also um, a claim that he caught the servants actually torturing a girl who was still alive and could point out who did this to her. Was that one true? I just don't know. It does seem to fit in with, hey, I've showed up. What's happening? Because it was happening a lot just by the odds. Mm -hmm. They might have caught a scenario that could not be open to misinterpretation. I guess that's as far as I'm willing to go. Yeah, they did find a dead body. The Countess's accomplices, pointed out helpfully by the rest of the staff, were seized and As part of their interrogation during this time, it was considered essential to torture someone to get the truth out. I don't don't know how that follows logically, but we've seen it a lot from Artemisia Gentileschi to Queen Elizabeth of England. One must torture a um, potential witness to get the truth out. So that's what happened. Um, The main one, however, the lady-in-waiting, Anna, having died, um, smartly, much of the cruelty was pointed out as being her fault. Convenient. Yes, she had that convenient stroke a year before. Dang. So they sang like canaries, I must say. Uh, Details shocked the noble judges um, who wrote unheard of from the beginning of the world by the female sex. This lady committed outrageous inhuman rage and satanic cruelty against Christian blood. It blew their minds that lady persons had this cruelty in them. And it still kind of blows our minds today that for some reason, are we on a pedestal? Do lady persons not commit such atrocities? I mean, statistically, no. Okay. Um, the four conspirators that were left placed the number of dead girls at somewhere around 50-ish, downplaying their roles, I think. Other members of staff at the assorted castles, more realistically, as far as I'm concerned, placed it at not reasonable for fatalities, but realistically at around 200 fatalities. That's shocking. There was one servant girl who claimed to have seen a list of over 650 Mm-hmm. People, um, the modern world seems to have latched on that number. That is a shocking number. But at the time, that number was not taken seriously. The witness was not taken seriously. And anyway, we have enough to be going on with with 200, don't you yeah. think? Oh, yeah. Or even 50, you have enough to go on. Yes. Yeah. One, you probably have enough to go on. But I digress. <laughs> so three of the conspirators were condemned to die. I don't know how the laundress got off scot-free. Because she was older. And I think they're... Uh, their sentences had to do with how old they were. And she was imprisoned for life, although at some point she was released and just kind of disappeared into the ether. Um, the two women were burned at the stake. Um, the servant boy was decapitated. So you glossed over the fate of the two women, including the nanny. Brace yourself. Hit the 15 second forward button. Do you want to hear how the women died? At least the man got beheaded. Their fingers were pulled off one by one before the final blow to their head. And then they were burned on a pile. Thanks. (laughs) So that's their sentence, which makes beheading seem quite merciful. They also went back in the Wayback Machine a little bit and found the witch who had been advising Erzabet on the black magic that poisoned the king and burnt her at the stake just for a complete picture. Now, as for the main guilty party, though... Our old, quote, friend, Erzabet, the king, wanted Erzabet to testify. He wanted to hear from her mouth what was happening. 
his justice, Yurki Thurko, and all the nobles said, no way. He said, the family that's won such high honors in the battlefield shall not be disgraced in the eyes of the nation by the murky shadow of this one bestial female. He was trying to protect the name, reputation, and property of the Bathory family, who in fact had provided noble service in the interest of the nation and in Mm -hmm. fact the king. Yeah. And the nobles all came to the king and this time they're thinking, oh shoot, if she gets prosecuted for this and all that stuff happens, her family is just ruined. It could happen to us. It sets a precedent. We don't want that to happen. We like our role as nobility. So they went to the king and also pleaded on Erzabeth's behalf to not execute her or send her to trial. So Erzabeth was writing letters to powerful relatives, urging them to free her by force. She always maintained her innocence throughout this whole process. That seems unsurprising. She did not seem to appreciate that Yorgi Thurko was trying to do everything he could to save her life or at least her property. And finally, he lost his patience with her and said, without referring to the king, you are in the last months of your life. You do not deserve to breathe the air on earth or see the light of the Lord. You shall disappear from this world and shall never reappear in it again. As the shadows envelope you, may you find time to repent your bestial life. I hereby condemn you, Lady of Cheta, to lifelong imprisonment in your own castle." The king was incensed. He was infuriated. Off with her head, I said, I demand this woman be questioned. And, of course, if we're thinking about people's rights these days, she was not allowed to face her accusers, if you think about it that way. Now, not that that was a right anyone could expect (laughs) during this time period. We're not going to hope for that, but... Nobody heard from her. Um, The nobles were petitioning the king. (laughs) Torturing a noblewoman sets a bad precedent. Please, please let the judgment of the Lord Palatine stand. She was in house arrest within her main residence this whole time, just awaiting the pleasure of the court and the king, wandering around from room to room, punching things, I can imagine. But the king demanded a new investigation. And this time, they took in 224 witness statements. And... (laughs) the network of conspirators even shocked the king. That's what made him stop. Like, oh no, this is going to be complicated. I'm going to lose a lot of allies and I'm not sure I can pull this off. (laughs) (laughs) And the king agreed, okay, to save face. Fair enough. Life imprisonment is fine with me. But can we please agree, all of us as nobility and royalty, to erase her from the records? Can we just not talk about her in polite society anymore? Legally, she never existed. That's what I request. I don't even need any money. Although, give me some money. And they did. But I don't even need any money as long as you erase her from history. And they did. Um, They did. Workmen came to the house where she was wandering around and bricked her up into her apartments at Castle Cheddar. There was a little space left to send food in or whatever, but it was the cask of Amontillado. She was bricked up. Does that creep you out? <laughs> yeah, it creeps me out. And and again, a lot of places will say she was bricked up into one, uh, one room where there was just a little bricks size space to slide food in and out. It was a little bit bigger than that. And I'm not trying to make it glorified because it was still imprisoned in her own castle. But yeah, and her family went along with it. Her family had been visiting her up until this point, uh, until the castle was cleared out of anything valuable, and they suddenly stopped. (laughs) At the beginning, people would pass her ink and things to write with and come to deliver the news of the day. But 
after a while, they just kind of stopped coming. Thurko's wife kept coming and stealing jewelry. I don't understand what the deal is with that. <laughs> because she could. So um, people gradually forgot about her. She had her guardians. I don't know what they expected her to do. She had people bringing her basic food stuff. She didn't have any people to help her get dressed or undressed as she had her whole life. She may not, in fact, have even been able to take off the dress in which she was imprisoned. Oh, oh, I hadn't read that. She didn't have any other clothing, you mean? Mm-mm, I don't think so. Oh, hmm. so she lived like this um, it, for another two years for a total imprisonment, because remember, she had been under house arrest earlier, total imprisonment of about four years. Um, she died in her sleep from unknown causes on August 21st, 1614, at the age of 54. She was buried at the church there in town until the villagers said, oh, no, 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 we want her gone from our holy place. So her remains were taken to, not sure. It might have been the castle where she grew up in. There's no, there's no idea of exactly where she is right now. History has no idea where she is. Mm-hmm. In this world, I don't know where I am after hearing this whole story. I don't, I don't know. I did not expect for so much of this. I thought, oh, now they just wanted her property. And, mm-hmm. you know, you'll read books where it's, oh, the king and the powerful nobles just wanted to take this property away from this innocent noble woman who was doing her best to keep the crap together. And I think you protest too much. Mm-hmm. There are 224 witnesses willing to talk, bodies. Dogs running around with arms. The circumstantial evidence alone, we can't exonerate her, I don't believe. No, I I agree with you completely. Because I went in thinking, oh, this is one of those, you know, that she was condemned by the patriarchy. And that's not the case. And there's also talk out there that the legal, uh, the way the trial was held was not legal. But holes have been filled in that theory. It's It's not true. So everything was legal. You know, we had talked about it. This testimony... Yes, it was given under torture, but that was common at the time. And witnesses were not willing to say exactly what they saw because they were fear for their lives. And that's the testimony that we have to look at these days. But yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. We, we can't clear her at all. Mm-mm. There is a subculture of girls out there that admire her. They want to um, polish up everything ugly about her and just admire her for some odd reasons. Even with the crimes attached to her name, they give reasons why she did it. Yeah. She's, there's, uh, there's a subculture. And this whole time I was thinking, well, is it some kind of strange sexual perversion? But I don't even think it rose to that level. I think it was just the thrill of hurting people was enough of a adrenaline rush i why do any serial killers do what they do there's whole books written on it (laughs) why they do what they do yeah i don't really know oh i have to say i fell down some rabbit holes that i really wished i hadn't like um, the torture devices i did learn that the iron maiden which is often brought up in these stories it never really existed it was an item of uh, fiction that people say oh it was a medieval torture device no not really it was fictional but so that was that was like a good thing but all the other tortures oh now i know what it feels like to be frozen to death I don't know if that's a good thing to have in my head or not, and I won't put it in yours. <laughs> and I just don't know that you need so much specialized equipment when you're willing to wield a knife to yeah, such exactly. a horrible extent or a sewing needle or a bucket of water or, in fact, just the open outside air. 
mm-hmm. in wintertime. I don't know that she needed specialist equipment other than a seriously broken moral compass. Yeah. So anyway, um, not thanks for dragging me into this subject. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm um, a little bummed that I even went here. Although knowledge is always power, I'm not sure how I will ever use that in the future. (laughs) We're going to have to clean our brains with our next subject. Correct. Is there a cartoon um, bunny rabbit we can cover? (laughs) How about Betty Boop? Oh, dear. That actually would be fun. I love Betty Boop. I do, too. Life's got kind of hard since cartoons went to color, but I still got it. (laughs) Okay. Well, so obviously we've been left speechless and we have nothing further to say. She's gone, um, leaving in her wake a trail of blood, tears, and I don't even know what throughout history. There you go. How about some media? Okay, so you will find infinite amounts of the bathing in blood thing. People cannot let it go. Mm -mm. Cannot let it go. And I would say to you, if you come across a book that says she bathed in the blood of her victims, you can safely return that to the library. Yes. I think that is a bright line. Um, So let's start with a little background reading. I am going to recommend a book called The Will to Survive, A History of Hungary by Brian Cartledge. And um, just a little background into the politics, the peasantry, what is the deal with District 13 and District 12 and the capital that was happening between the peasants and the nobles for 350 years in Hungary. That'll give you a little more kind of background on how the peasants had become so dehumanized Mm -hmm. in the public consciousness. But the book that I would almost bet that we are both relying on, uh, whichever edition we have, Infamous Lady, The True Story of Countess Ersebet Battery by Kimberly L. Craft. Now, I have the second edition, which is well over 400 and some pages and includes excerpts of letters and also lots of the testimony from the assorted trials. So in the interest of the only bit of comedy I can rest out of this whole entire subject, There is a letter in which Elizabeth Bathory is angrily demanding that someone return to her all the cannabis he had stolen from her. (laughs) There is the only degree of comedy I can get a hold of. And Kimberly L. Craft had another book, and I suspect that the letters from that were in your version were in this one. It's called The Private Letters of Countess Erzbeth Battery by Kimberly L. Craft. So she has an interesting legal background, historical background, and she could speak Latin and Hungarian. So she was able to translate the letters. I thought those were good. There's another one called Countess Dracula, The Life and Times of Elizabeth Bathory, The Blood Countess by Tony Thorne. That looks more at the trial. It has all the questions and answers that were given as testimony written out. It's more of a scholarly work than um, Infamous Lady, which has actual dialogue in it. I thought that was kind of nice. This isn't a book, but you can read it online, and it has a lot of information. It is a master's thesis written by Rachel Lee Bledsaw. We'll give you a link. It is a very easy to read, which surprised me. Discussion of the validity of most every single conspiracy theory that is out there and either proves or disproves them. I thought it was a really good read for something that was almost 200 pages long, and I certainly hope she achieved her master's degree for writing it. Ah, very good. And she has an entry both on his website and in his book, Rejected Princesses, Heroines, Hellions, and Heretics by Jason Porath. If you don't own it yet, I don't know why, but <laughs> I will link you up to both the book and the entry on his website. 
Castle Chanta is a ruin. You can visit it in Slovakia if you're in the neighborhood. Um, everything you'd probably want to see is gone. But I will embed a video of a drone flying over it so you don't have to go to Slovakia. Although, that saves a lot of money. <laughs> it does. Although the village, it's, she's like a tourist industry now for that village, which is kind of good, I guess. The irony of her finally being of benefit to that village. There is a website called bathory.org. We'll link you to that. It's run by a man who claims to be one of her last descendants. He gives a quick disclaimer that that was based on family lore, but it has a lot of information. And this guy wrote an opera based on Elizabeth's story. It's all on YouTube, and we will link you up to that as well. So, so far, there hasn't been a movie that doesn't rely on the very visual aspect of her bathing in blood. We can't let it go. Nope. 2008 movie, 2009 movie, 2015 movie. Did you watch any of them? I have got part of the 2009 movie that I found on YouTube, and I didn't love it, not only for the bathing in blood thing, but the fact that they really put her quote, love of Yorgi Thurko as a central plot point, their unrequited love, impossible, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's why he saved her at the end. I just don't care for that. One of the versions, I think it was a 2008 version. It had horrible dialogue and it also had as a character Caravaggio, the artist. They worked him into the storyline somehow. There are a couple of these movies on uh, Amazon Prime and they are streaming if this is you're into slasher gore. If you've already paid for Amazon Prime. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't pony up for this. I None mean, of them. She recommends Mrs. Maisel. That is more of a reason to pay for Amazon Prime. <laughs> but while you're there, if you want to watch 15 minutes of that for free. <laughs> you could also watch uh, Lore has an episode. Lore's television show has an episode on her that's on Amazon Prime. So there you go. Yeah. Plus, you get free shipping. <laughs> That's very important to me. It is. It is. I told you before, there's a whole subculture that's fascinated by her. Etsy has several items on their website. I did a search. I'll link you to the search. Things from, oh, I don't know, a blood red bath bomb to jewelry with the family crest. There's a whole bunch of merch you can get. She's your thing. But I don't believe that you can get an episode of Drunk History. You cannot, because if it exists, I couldn't find it. I was surprised. So yet again, <laughs> people of drunk history, if you need us to cover anything, you know where we are. <laughs> it's going to be hysterical if they ever contact us. Yes, goal achieved. I don't have anything else. And so, although I'm still mad at you for dragging me here, thanks for listening. See you, stock, which is Hungarian for bye. <laughs> If you liked what you heard today, or if it disturbed you and you were sad that you listened to it, like myself, please leave a review for us on iTunes or tell a few friends about us. Don't forget to join the lounge. We have a listener group over on the lounge where everyone can talk, not just us. Just go to the Facebook page, The History Chicks, and look for the button that says Join Group. Answer one simple question about who the first person was that you heard when you came to our show, and you're in. That's the only requirement. Just don't be a robot. It's a pretty low bar. And we would love to see you there. Um, we have Pinterest boards for every single one of our episodes. So go over there if you would like to fall down some wholesome rabbit holes in, say, the Beatrix Potter episode or Lillian Gilbreth. Ah, <sighs> take a breath. <laughs>
and clean your mind from the story of Elizabeth Bathory. And the end song, by courtesy of Music Alley, is The Killer in Me by Amy Spies. Cause a lever in me can't quit